You are my lord, Don Quixote. Don Quixote. Uh, forgive me, I am confused by shadows. It is possible I knew you once, I do not remember. <laughs> My name's Ash, and our book for today is the second part of Don Quixote. If you haven't listened to our episode on the first part, uh, scroll back an inch or so, it should be there. A lot happens in the first half of a thousand-page novel, and a lot happens in a decade, which is how much time elapsed between the publication of these two instalments. Why it took so long is an interesting question. The first book was popular and its author was broke, so why don't we have a pile of Don Quixote sequels each less inspired and more desperate-sounding than the last. Well, answering that will take us down the road of a 17th-century literary scandal, something we have celebrated by releasing a whole episode on literary frauds for our Patreon listeners over at patreon.com slash earreadthis. But today's episode isn't just the story of fraud. In part one of Don Quixote, we saw the Don set off on two sallies, joined for the second by his squire, Sancho Panza. The people he encountered were baffled and bemused by the knight of the sorrowful face. Some moved to violence, others left blinking in his hoof dust. The cannier amongst them cottoned on and indulged the Don's fantasies, either for personal gain or out of kindness. But in novel two, the novelty is gone. The people the Don meets in part two have not only heard of his exploits, some of them have even read his first book. Cervantes ended his previous instalment by saying... The author of this history found no account of a third sally, but would continue to search without asking for compensation from his readers for the immense labour required to investigate and search all the Manchegan archives. Indeed, he would receive no compensation for his immense labour, as he was robbed of his royalties to part one, and he would have died in poverty if it wasn't for the patronage of a nobleman in the last three years of his life. In the intervening decade between the publication of part one and part two, Cervantes published his exemplary novels, a book of 12 stories, but also became unwell, suffering from an unconfirmed illness thought to be either dropsy or diabetes. He he was in La Mancha, where Don Quixote's from, for a while. Oh, that's where the man's from. The the man, yeah. Um, He was unhappily married, but he was living on his wife's farm in La Mancha, this sort of parched... Yeah. The parched plains, kind of mid. Well, his well, but his life was just such a tragedy. He never, he never got paid. No, for, for the not book for Don Quixote. No, or at least not for part one. Or at least not very much. No. So I don't, I don't think they'd really publishers fucked him over. I don't think, I don't think there was really a set set rules about what publishers had to pay. His patron was the Count Don Pedro Fernandez de Castro, who was the dedicatee of part two. Buoyed by patronage, Cervantes enthusiastically promised two further works in his prologue to Don Quixote Part Two. the works being Persiles and a sequel to Galatea. He completed his first promise but died the following year in 1616. Because I'd always heard that they, Shakespeare and Cervantes were almost contemporaries. Uh, Cervantes is quite a lot older, uh-huh. but they died on the same day, 23rd of April, uh, mm. 1616. Um, Turns out, though... That they shot each other. <laughs> it was a duel. Um, God, can you imagine? That's the conspiracy That's theory. That's the conspiracy we're theory. Um, we were using different calendars. Okay. The Catholics were using the Gregorian calendar. Uh, and Elizabeth's bishops had told her, no fucking way, <laughs> no fucking way are we using that, those bastards' calendar. That heretical calendar. Yeah. 
so we were still I, I don't know the name is it the Julian the Protestant the one? Julian calendar yeah, yeah. Um, anyway this means they died about 10 days apart that was one of still the, pretty close still close though yeah At the beginning of part two, we find the Don where we left him, in his bed in La Mancha. His adventures in part one had worn him out, and now he is looking dry and gaunt as a mummy. The priest and the barber who delivered him home go and visit the Don, leaving it a month before they see him again face to face, in fear of triggering his past lunacy. They bring him news that the king has been fortifying the coast, and this awakens the dormant knight-errant, who, to the dismay of the priest and barber, emotionally calls on all other knights-errant to attend to the king. Our decadent age does not deserve to enjoy the good that was enjoyed in the days when knights-errant took it as their responsibility to bear on their own shoulders the defence of kingdoms, the protections of damsels, and the safeguarding of orphans and wards, the punishment of the proud, and the rewarding of the humble. Now, sloth triumphs over diligence, idleness over work, vice over virtue, arrogance over valour and theory over the practice of arms, which lived and shone only in the golden age and in the time of the knights errant. This return to old ways is a little reminiscent of Mr Toad dismaying Rat and Mole when he gleefully reveals that he hasn't actually learnt a thing. Quixote might be a knight errant, but he is also a knight of God. It is the threat posed to Christendom by the Turks which provokes Quixote to action. And something of the noble soldier recalls Cervantes' prologue to this part, in which he responds to insults from a certain Avalonada regarding his age and his paralysed left hand. What I do mind is that he accuses me of being old and one-handed, as if it had been in my power to stop time and halt its passage, or as if I had been wounded in some tavern, and not at the greatest event ever seen in past or present times, or that future times can ever hope to see. The event in question was the Battle of Lepanto, and despite Cervantes' poor treatment from the Spanish government as a returning injured veteran, this prologue shows his continued reverence for the national cause, and on the wings of a similar patriotic emotion, Don Quixote sets out on his third sally. One of the great things Nabokov does is make a map of everywhere they go in Spain. Uh-huh. I'll try and if, I, if there's a picture of it, I'll, I'll put it on. Instagram. Are they just going round and round in circles? Um, no, but it's a bit random. Okay. And um, like Shakespeare, it has a quite casual relationship with geography. Yeah. Um, but w- um, one of the points he makes is that f- the first part there's all these sallies and they just go out and have an adventure and come back and then go out somewhere else yeah. and come back. Um, whereas the second part, they're almost always indoors. Cervantes tells us in his prologue that I give you a somewhat expanded Don Quixote, who is, at the end, dead and buried. This isn't much of a spoiler. After all, the novel is ostensibly a true history of a man's life, which would naturally end in the hero's death. But it also functions as a warning. Cervantes had been rattled by the publication of a false Quixote the previous year. One way to stop another spurious version of the Don's adventures was to kill him off. The expansion of Don Quixote, the text that is, is noticeable early on. Throughout the first part, we saw that many interpolated stories are narrated by different characters, and the novel is dialogue-heavy, a book of voices. One aspect we didn't mention in our previous episode is the narrator of Don Quixote. Although Cervantes introduces the books in his prologues, the narrator is in fact an Arab Muslim historian called Ben Gelly. This is in keeping with the text being a found history and is a neat device which allows Cervantes to lay any fancifulness, errors or out-and-out lies at the feet of Benengeli. 
for Cervantes, as he says in his first prologue, is merely stepfather to the text. In part one, the device of Benengeli is introduced after a cliffhanger at the end of chapter eight. After mistaking two friars of St. Benedict for enchanters, Quixote ends up in a battle with them, Sancho, as usual, getting skillfully beaten up somewhere in the background. The fight reaches a dramatic high point, Quixote and the friars with swords raised, when Cervantes suddenly breaks the action, apologises and says it was at this moment that he ran out of material in the Manchegan archives. This device seems at first strangely modern, something out of a soap opera maybe, but in fact the interrupted narrative was a cliché of chivalric romances. Only Cervantes uses it to change narrators. In the following chapter, he tells of finding an Arabic manuscript at a market, which happens to be the story of Don Quixote. He has it translated into Castilian, and from now on, what we hear is not the word of Cervantes, but that of Benengeli. Benengeli is an unintrusive and diligent narrator, though Cervantes reckons he could do with praising Don Quixote a little more. He also makes it clear to the reader that, should they entertain any doubts about the veracity of what's being said, they should remind themselves that it was written by an Arab. How would this book read when it was written and published in a time that was closer to when it was set? When there were actually knight errants going around and doing stuff, rather than it just being some fragment of the past? Could it, it would have been much more satirical and it would have been much more of a comment on our modern society than it would have been to us. Part two, I think, is Mm. like that. I think part two is quite politically astute. There's Mm -hmm. references to the Moriscos who were um, uh, descendants of um, the Muslims who first moved into Spain and were now being forced to either convert to Catholicism or get out. And they were all kind of expelled after about 1609. So like between the two publications of um, Mm -hmm. the two installments of Don Quixote. But the first part, um, he's spoofing the books of chivalry the romantic um you know stories of knights errant but actually they had um they'd long fallen out of popularity by then so it was it would be like i don't know it'd be like you or i spoofing a agatha christie type detective novel but we're we're not taking on people who are currently right we're taking on very or i don't know I suppose people do kind of write Agatha Christie yeah. books, don't they? I think, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of what a modern analog to this would be. Maybe more like colonial adventure stories, or like period dramas, or like period. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jane Austen novels, yeah. that kind of thing. I think that it's just far enough in the past for it to be. Everyone knows about. Them. Everyone knows about it, and therefore it's easy to satirize. According to Guy Davenport, the historical moment in which Don Quixote was written, the reign of Philippe II, is one we have silvered over with a moonlight of romance. Philippe II was, in Davenport's words, a paranoid fanatic, a kind of nightmare Quixote living in his own illusory world. While his reign inaugurated a Spanish golden age of cultural renaissance and imperial might, it was marred by frequent bankruptcies and a brutal domestic policy. As a loyal soldier of the Catholic Church, Philippe employed the Spanish Inquisition and burnt through heretics faster than state coffers. Despite Spain's dominant global position, his court retained a touch of the Quixotic. Davenport says that his nobles owned suits of armours in which no cavalryman would dare to try and conduct battle. It was during Philippe's reign, too, that the expulsion of the Moriscos took place. In a fascinating essay titled Cannons of Fire, Georgina de Pico Black explains that at the time of Don Quixote's publication, the last Arabs were being expelled from Spain, and yet 
Arabic manuscripts were being hoarded by the state in an act of mass cultural appropriation, or more like cultural absorption. It's appropriate that Don Quixote's narrator is an absent Arab whose text has been pirated and translated back into Spanish. This is just one reminder of the reality of 17th century Spain. This is not a book of chivalry or a parody of one in its own fictive universe. It is a book set in the real world. Something Nabokov was quick to do in his lectures on Quixote was to draw for his students a 16th century windmill, then a novel innovation which, as he explained, could be understandably mistaken by rustics for a giant. So I've I've not read part two. Mm. What In what ways does it differ from part one? Well, I know you want to talk about this. So first part is published in 1605. Yeah. Cervantes is already quite old, uh-huh. especially for the time. I think he's like 57. And then the second part comes out. Yeah, 10 years later. Yeah. Oh, okay. No. Yeah. Nine years Nine later, years later. A second part yeah. emerges um, called the something like The Continued Adventures of the yeah. Ingenious Man from La Mancha, published by a man called Avalanada, mm-hmm. I think. Um, this is a plagiaristic, pirated <laughs> second version. Um, the first bootleg. And it seems that um, it made a load of money. It insulted Cervantes throughout. Um, yeah, but I think he saw how much money it made. Yeah. And then he wrote his own one. But I think he was also furious. Yeah. Or that that's certainly his um uh his manner in the second part. Under authority of the Holy Office of the Inquisition, by reason of certain offences committed against His Majesty's most Catholic Church, the following is summoned to give answer and submit his person for purification, if it be so ordered, Don Miguel de Cervantes. According to Harold Bloom, part two of Cervantes' dark book manifests a growth in the sorrowful face's awareness of his own rhetoricity. When, incredibly, his squire Sancho Panza finally receives his long-promised island... Don Quixote gives him an advisory speech that spans over two chapters. He ends by saying, On a foundation of foolishness, no reasonable building can be erected. Enough of this, Sancho, for if you govern badly, the fault will be yours and mine the shame. Nabokov finds in Don Quixote's advice the snake of doubt, common to all who are the maker of their own marvels. He says, There is something in the tone of those instructions of his to Sancho, it evokes in one the image of an elderly, seedy, obscure poet who has never been successful in anything, giving to his sturdy, popular, extrovert son a sound bit of advice as to how to be a prosperous plumber or politician. Not only has Quixote changed, Sancho has too. We hear from his wife that since he's become a squire, his speech has become unrecognisable. And she is validated by the translator of Benengeli's text, who comments on a section of Sancho's dialogue saying he thought it was apophrical because in it Sancho Panza speaks in a manner different from what one might expect. Is this a mistranslation? Another Arabic exaggeration? Or perhaps Sancho has grown in cunning? In a later episode, Sancho tries to persuade Don Quixote that three peasant girls are the Dulcinea of Toboso and some friends. Quixote can't believe it. For once, he sees things for what they are. And this prompts Sancho to encourage him to clear the mist from his eyes. What was your favourite episode of the the Don Quixote show? Um, 
good question. I think the first uh, in scene. Okay. Because that it, it's. Remind, remind me how that one goes again. Actually, there are two. One is that um, he turns up to the inn. He takes it for a castle. This is this is before um, he has Sancho in tow. Uh-huh. He takes it for a castle, and he takes the innkeeper for the castellan, the um, keeper of the castle. I remember this one. And he gets him to swear. Uh, he gets him to make him a knight, basically. And the innkeeper is like, um, sure, yeah, and just goes along with it. And so it's the first time you sort of see people indulging Don Quixote's madness or, yeah. or, or feigned obsession or whatever it is. Um, and so it's quite endearing. It's one of those ones where everyone sort of wins. Yeah. So that's quite nice because there's so much violence in this book. So I mean, it's another thing Nabokov goes, like, is, finds really distasteful is the just sheer quantity of violence. It's a very violent the book. The amount of times they have their shit kicked out of them. <laughs> and really unfairly and yeah. really brutally. They lose ears. They're, you know, wheezing on the floor. They're <laughs> bleeding. Don Quixote at one point gets, like, handcuffed to a... He's standing on a horse, handcuffed. And the horse is walking away, and he's like, he's pretty much like in a kind of rack situation. Uh-huh. Hideous. It's some of it's very tonally off. Yeah, yeah. So it goes from it goes from lighthearted to grim mm. quite quickly. Part two begins with what might be construed as an apology for the first volume's violence. As Sancho recalls his agonies, Quixote asks him. Do you mean to say, Sancho, that I felt no pain when you were tossed in the blanket? If he did, we didn't read about it. Aware of the existence of a text describing Don Quixote's adventures, the barber says some readers could have done without all the endless beatings. Surprisingly, it is Sancho who defends their inclusion, saying that's where the truth of the history comes in. Cervantes uses this early sequence to address a few other criticisms of the first volume, such as those highlighting the apparent error regarding Sancho's ass. In the first edition, Dapple the donkey is stolen by a mystery thief, only to casually reappear without any mention of it. In a later edition, Cervantes clarified that it was Hines de Pasamonte who stole Dapple, but here Sancho simply shrugs it off. I don't know what answer to give you, except that the one who wrote the story must have made a mistake, or else it must be due to carelessness on the part of the printer. The 17th century novel, says Nabokov, had not yet evolved consciousness, the conscious memory permeating the whole work. And it is apparent that Cervantes seems to have written part two without consulting part one, as he mistakes or misremembers several details. One interesting difference between the two parts are the changes in the numerous lyrics and ballads scattered throughout the text. Those in the first part included a substantial amount written by Cervantes years before Don Quixote, and seemed to his translators to have been meant earnestly. By contrast, the lyrics of part two are largely parodic, burlesques of the same forms. In part one, Don Quixote gives a famous speech mourning the lost golden age, the golden age that Ovid writes of in his Metamorphoses, a time when the crooked plough had not yet dared to force open and search the kindly bowels of our first mother. And a reprisal of this pastoral longing occurs towards the end of part two, where Don Quixote imagines himself and his squire as the shepherds, Quixotes and Pancino. This speech is more melancholy than that bombastic one of the first part. Their adventures are now drawing to a close. Their third sally has been stranger, crueler, and noticeably more indoorsy than the previous two. Before Don Quixote's return home and demise, it seems like a last spark of longing for a new land, perhaps even a new novel, a pastoral romance rather than a chivalric one. It's worth remembering that Cervantes at the time was planning a sequel to La Galatea, his earlier, less successful pastoral romance. 
which indicates, despite his intermittent parodying of pastoral lyrics, that he still nurtured a desire to earnestly write in that genre. One of the most interesting things about the second part of Don Quixote is that some of the characters in it have read the first part or heard the first part and heard the f- um, interesting. The, the, second, the fake part as well. So some people have to go, Don Quixote has to say, you know, no, that wasn't me. I didn't do that. <laughs> you know, that, that was the fake one. That's fantastic, actually, yeah. because if you built into... So the adventures of Don Quixote are... Are the tale of Spain. People, people are live waiting for the stories, and the real Don Quixote turns up and he has to go. That one was me. Yeah, yeah. And that one's not me. Exactly. Yeah. I like that. And he, you know, he's a man suffering under delusions, and yet he knows he's clever enough to go. You know, yeah. that wasn't me. That was. <laughs> I remember which particular spates of madness happened yeah, here. Yeah, I, I know. I know what my. I know exactly is. how mad I am. <laughs> yeah. Don Quixote learns that the story of his first two sallies have made it into print early on. He is surprised his exploits are already in a book, even though the blood of his enemies he had slain was not yet dry on the blade of his sword. And the in-novel printing is indeed remarkable, given that it is only a month since Quixote's adventures ended. But in part two there exists not only Cervantes' first volume, but a false Quixote as well. So yeah, they never found out who the author of this spurious second part was. William Shakespeare. <laughs> oh, what a twist. Um, N- Nabokov suggests it could even be him himself. That was, that, that was my next conspiracy yeah. theory, which is he did it to measure interest in a second part. I'll just make sure I got the name right, but I think he'd done some research and found out that someone related to uh, Cervantes was called Avalaneda. Interesting. Um, so... Yeah, there is a link. According to Nabokov, the spurious Quixote was put on the market, probably at the moment when the 10-year copyright that Cervantes had on his first part had expired, that is, on the 26th of September, 1614. Cervantes appears understandably annoyed at Avalanada's work, especially since it aimed numerous personal insults at the original author. It is generally considered a shabby piece of work, though Nabokov gives it some allowances, complimenting its brisk raciness, and saying its slapstick scenes measure up to the original. Several occurrences in part two of Cervantes' novel serve as direct repudiations of Avalonada. One reasonable explanation for Sancho's pointed elevation in cleverness is the fact that the false Sancho was a mere punchline, gross, slovenly and stupid. One of the most memorable features of part two is the shadow that pursues Quixote throughout, a fellow knight, known first as the Knight of the Wood, then Knight of Mirrors, finally returning as the Knight of the White Moon. He originally claims to have defeated a knight with the name of Don Quixote, which our stunned knight takes to mean an imposter. They duel, Quixote flukes a victory, and the knight is revealed to be Sanson Carrasco, a fellow Manchegan who wants to fool the suggestible Don. Once he is revealed, Quixote indeed waves it off as an enchantment, willingly disbelieving that it is Carrasco, when the figure reappears as the Knight of the White Moon later on. This time, Carrasco is successful, and insists the conditions of his victory are obeyed, namely that Quixote will return home for a year. This the Don agrees to, and the adventure has found its end. And it's a rather flat end. Nabokov laments that Quixote's final battle isn't with his imposter, speculating... Who would have been the victor? The fantastic, lovable madman of genius, or the fraud, the symbol of robust mediocrity? My money is on Avalonada's man. 
because the beauty of it is that in life, mediocrity is more fortunate than genius. The mirror motif is strengthened not only by the actual existence of a false Quixote, but the familiar beats throughout the second part, such as the return of Hines de Passamonte in a famous scene during which Quixote cuts a puppet show to pieces for not being true to life. There is even a moment when Quixote considers tilting at watermills, suspecting them to be the work of enchanters. And in the second half, the duo are entertained by a duke and duchess who take it upon themselves to trick our heroes with a series of schemes. I find like the, the, in the second part, there's the whole stuff with the duke and the duchess and it, um, for the most part, is just pure cruelty. It's, it is torturing them incessantly. Nabokov describes these scenes as having a laboratory light and serving as a way of throwing back the curtain on how Quixote has been treated by his author. Now ask my name, Don Quixote. Now I shall tell it. I am called the Knight of the Mirrors. <laughs> Look, Don Quixote, look in the mirror of reality and behold things as they truly are. Is this the first novel? I don't think so, really. I don't, I don't, I don't know... Because it's, it's ended up with that title one way or the other. Yeah. I think the closest thing is it's like it's the first, first good one. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think so, well, that's what people tend to mean. Uh-huh. Um, but no, I mean, he, he was spoofing pastoral novels. Yeah. You know. And God, they need it. Yeah. Because, honest to God, I, I don't know if I've talked about how much I hate Thomas Hardy. Well, I mean, he's he's way off. Yeah, but when, when we're talking about pastoral <laughs> novels, fuck me. <laughs> I think The Mayor of Casterbridge might be my least favourite book of all time. You know, um, Tess of the Durbervilles, I've yeah. never gone back to. I was, I was taught it at school. Sorry, just... Were you just having a moment? Wrestling this... Um, I mean, it, look, it looks good having a microphone balanced on four copies of The Natural History of Animals, yeah, but it's not a particularly good mic stand. No, it's not a good mic stand. Unfortunately, the poor mic stand I had previously bought snapped. Quite a MacGyver-type setup, this. Um, Back to how much I dislike Thomas Hardy. Yeah, at school, I, I, Tess of the Durbervilles was one of those books that was it killed it for me. I don't think... I, just, I, don't, I even think you'd think if you'd read it on your own. Yeah, probably would have. Uh, it's a good, difficult one, though. I'd like to talk about Hardy, but maybe we could pick a poem. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, I will, I will not read any of the other... I will not read any new Hardy, and I will definitely not reread any of the ones I've already read. No, fair enough. But I, um, we're veering way off track here, but I think that would be quite interesting to do if there's a, a book you refuse to reread. <laughs> it's Mary, we'll do an episode on it's it. It's the Mayor of Casterbridge, yeah. because all I've got is vi- a bile about how much... That would be quite funny to do. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Back to Spain. Back to a better book. Mm. I mean, The Golden Ass, which I, I did a uh-huh. thing about. That's a novel. That is a novel. And that was, um, I think it was written in about 100 AD. According to Nabokov, by 1600, the dialogue with great writers in all countries is excellent. Natural, supple, colourful and alive. But it's not until the start of the 19th century that the verbal rendering of landscapes reaches a similar level. And it is only in the second half of that century that descriptive passages referring to outside nature cease to stick out in separate paragraphs. That's the other thing. Um, there's so much dialogue. There, are, there, there will be pages and pages and pages of one speech. Uninterrupted dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Most novels were like that. Uh-huh. You know, a lot of dialogue. And it took a long time before people... Yes, there is description of the landscape, but it seems fairly flat in terms of... It, in, compare, compared to the dialogue, the dialogue is kind of vibrant and can be 
sassy and you know all of the wordplay and all of that kind yeah. of thing would be very live to his readers then but um as soon as it comes to describing uh you know the view it just grinds to a halt it's very cliched and yeah. very kind of hyperbolic as it's providence as this sort of landmark in literary history mm. people or some people seem to think that it is the best-selling book of all time something like in the hundreds of millions, like 500 million copies, or at least 500 million people have been exposed to Don Quixote, Don Quixote. over the last 500 years. Mm. What does that... Why is it so involved in our culture and our language, but it's not a more important book, if you see what I mean? You mean... Well, it, doesn't, it, 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 it doesn't enjoy... If you if you stop a random person in the street and ask, "Have you ever read Don Quixote?" Yeah, it's going to be a no. But they'll say nine they've out heard of ten of it. times. Well, they'll say they've heard of it. Yeah, well, I think it comes back to that thing of um, the characters immortal. The book itself probably isn't, because mm -hmm. um, there are bits that, that are quite tedious. <laughs> I mean, and unfortunately, um, I think one of the main ones is um, the character who recounts the pretty much biographical. Um, section mm -hmm. about being kidnapped by pirates and that, the bit that Cervantes' life, basically. Yeah. You know that it suffers from the um, Tolkien thing of there being an awful lot of songs. Yeah. Um, and I think another Pickwick connection is that uh, there's a, a lot of ballads, um, comic ballads and wordplay that, however well you translate it, is lost. Yeah. Um, you know. A lot of Shakespeare's wordplay is totally lost in us because we just do not know the... Meanings of the words yeah, at the time. Yeah, what is that allusion? Got no idea. So, you know, what I just said about the biographical thing mm -hmm. being a bit tedious, to someone who has to study it in as much depth as a translator, mm -hmm. they're probably the more interesting bits because That's you true. know about Cervantes' life so you can you can pick out every single, um, you know, comparison to what actually happened in it, sentence by sentence. In the first part, we left Don Quixote in the hands of the barber and the priest, the caretaker of the soul and the caretaker of the body. There is a greater religious emphasis in part two. The notion of Quixote as a soldier of God is more distinct. W. H. Auden found in Don Quixote the portrait of a Christian saint. Harold Bloom disagrees, saying that Don Quixote does regard himself as God's knight, but continuously follows his own capricious will. The novel has been described as the first work to portray a world abandoned by the gods exciting commentators to point out that its publication coincided with that of Shakespeare's King Lear. There is something at once blasphemous and reverent about Quixote's imagination. In following the internal logic of his own fantasies, Quixote inadvertently or otherwise eliminates the necessity of a great organiser. The most alive and exciting parts of the book feature him in the midst of a chaos of his own making. The slowest and least enjoyable are those when others attempt to condition it, such as the Duke and Duchess of Part 2. According to Carlos Fuentes, Don Quixote makes evident a challenge that we consider peculiarly ours, how to accept the diversity and mutation of the world while retaining the mind's power for analogy and unity, so that this changing world shall not become meaningless. This is the nature of Quixote's secular transcendence, the ability to create his own language, one that, insisted upon with enough force, takes on a life of its own. The drawback is, once the language is in the hands of others, his mad adventures printed, he becomes as vulnerable to attack as any other books of chivalry. When he comes across copies of the spurious Quixote being printed, 
The real Don can only wish it were burned, like the books of his own library, and stalk away ineffectually. Even his own narrator begins to have doubts. At one famous moment of the second part, Quixote is lowered 80 fathoms into the cave of Montesinos. There's also an episode in the in the second part where he's um, lowered into a cave mm-hmm. and fall, um, falls asleep. But, and someone has to hoist, Sancho has to hoist him back up. And when he comes up, he invents this whole adventure he went on. And it's another interesting play on, like, is he mad or is he just playing it? Oh. Half an hour later, he is retrieved and found to be sound asleep. However, he reports that, though indeed he fell asleep, when he awoke, he found himself lying in a meadow. Extraordinary events followed, taking place over three days, involving, among other things, an enchantment cast by Merlin. At this point, Benengeli interjects to say for the first time he cannot believe this truly happened to Quixote, but he included the story because he can't imagine a man so honourable would lie. The canon in part one says, I have seen no book of chivalry that creates a complete tale, a body with all its members intact. Don Quixote is born at the beginning of that volume as a Hidalgo recreating the stories he has suffused himself with. Georgina de Pico Black comments on the contemporary commonplace of referring to books as bodies. They, after all, have spines, faces and fingers or indices. The body of Don Quixote is created out of texts and according to Foucault, Quixote himself is like a sign, a long, thin graphism, a letter that has just escaped from the open pages of a book. When he sallies out, he is writing himself, wandering through the world among the resemblances of things. The picaresque tradition of a book ending with the hero's death is given a level of self-awareness. When he returns to La Mancha, he knows it is to die, of, in the words of Ramon Menendez Pidal, the sadness of life upon discovering that reality is inferior to him. I was mad, now I am sane. I was Don Quixote of La Mancha, and now I am, as I have said, Alonso Quiano the Good. According to Anne J. Cruz, Don Quixote's final disappearing act confirms his irrevocable subsumation into his own text, an act that binds the two volumes of 1605 and 1615 into one readily whole. The novel's processes of transformation come full circle. Romances of chivalry act upon Alonso Quiano, converting him into Don Quixote, who is in turn acted upon and reified by his own romance, Don Quixote, which transforms him into Alonso Quiano, the good. Cervantes seals his hero away, saying, For me alone was Don Quixote born. And Cervantes, knowing how to write where his hero knew how to act, gifts him immortality. Here lies the mighty gentleman, who rose to such heights of valour that death itself did not triumph over his life with his death. He did not esteem the world. He was the frightening threat to the world in this respect, for it was his great and good fortune to live a madman and die sane. So yeah, I think it shows its age. It doesn't make it any less important or less immortal, but I did not enjoy it as a reading experience. Okay. So when are you going to read part two? Uh, right now. <laughs> we'll do a live reading. We'll do a live reading. Um, I think I will get around to reading it at some point. Mm. There was enough in the first one that left me curious about what the second one could possibly be. Yeah. And if you're saying it's not totally more of the same, yeah, then that intrigues me more of, into reading it than... It's definitely not. Would you recommend it? I'd, I would, yeah. I'd certainly recommend Edith Grossman's. 
version. I really feel like is. I feel like we we've had two different experiences of the same book based yeah. entirely on translation. That's why I was really interested which one you read. I'll look it up. But I I feel like I dragged my way through this book over yeah. the course of months. Yeah. Where I don't think if we hadn't if we weren't going to talk about it, I would have I would have given up yeah. long ago. Yeah. I I enjoyed it, but I feel like I don't know. What, at the same time, I check when it trans when it was translated. I'm going to check how long it is. Yeah, and we'll see if your translation has been abridged in any way. I don't think it's abridged. Is yours fully? I think she makes the point of saying I'm not abridging it. Okay, film adaptation. Yeah, I. Well, I watched a really bad one. Did you? <laughs> yeah, because I've never. I've I've seen a bit of the Man of La Mancha. Yeah. I think I just saw a clip of him singing. Um, the famous one, was it? You know, how does it go? Dream, oh, dream the impossible yeah. dream. Um, do you know more about that? Because I, I don't know anything about it really. I, I struggled to find a decent quality version to watch. Yeah, I know, I know of the existence, but it just seems like such an impossible task to try and turn that story into a Very screenplay. Nice. Well, I, that brings me to my favourite Don Quixote film, if uh-huh. it counts, which is um, oh god, I've forgotten, the, Lost in La Mancha. Yeah. The, f- the film of the documentary about Terry Gilliam trying to make his Don Quixote movie. Well, it, th- that production sounds like the production of the lost version of June. Yeah. Where? Uh, Jodorowsky. 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 I, can never, I never know how to pronounce that name. Listen, this episode is going to be a minefield for things we've pronounced wrong. I'm Jodor- sure there's Jodorowsky. It's, it sounds like, uh, it's, it sounds like a, a Don Quixote Sally, yeah, full of dead ends and pointless rambles and extravagances. And at the end of the day, it was all an enormous waste of time. Yeah, I definitely recommend Lost in La Mancha. Mm, well, look at that's, that. That's good, good, good watch. Um, did you see Terry Gilliam's? I mean, he's finally made it now. Which one? The man who killed Don Quixote came out last year, I think. Or no, maybe I never, this year. I've, I remember hearing something about it around film festival time, but I never got around to seeing it. Did you see it? No. Didn't, not. didn't look good. Oh, okay. I'll, also, I'll... also, it was more poetic for him to have failed. You know? <laughs> How now dare he? Yeah, now that he's succeeded. Well, they're it. making another version of June, for God's sake. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That'll be rubbish because it's the Blade yeah. Runner 2 guy. Oh, do you not like Blade not... Runner 2? <laughs> We've been over this. Can of worms. Do you ever see Brazil? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Terry Gilliam, sh- Terry Gilliam on, on his A game, can yeah. make an amazing film. And I feel like if anybody was going to succeed at making a Kyoto, probably be him. I haven't seen the latest one, so I don't want to colour anyone's opinion of it. I just, okay. I just think, from from a poetic point of view, it would be better to have tried and failed than to have tried than to have tried and then twenty it years later. Yeah. Off. Um, talking about the the weird, um, kind of disastrous failures connected to the book mm-hmm. when it was first published, um, Spain was getting most of its income from the New World, yeah. so most of it was um, murdering, murdering the natives, yeah murdering natives and importing their silver and when the uh armada invincible didn't turn out to be that invincible and um we uh spanked them and they lost their kind of dominance of uh-huh. the waves the silver imports went down and you know things started to look really pretty seriously bad for spain mm-hmm. but um when the first part was published um they tried to sell it in america by sending, I think, like four, several hundred copies For God. over the Atlantic. Please tell me they sank. Please tell me. <laughs> Adam, it sank. And <laughs> sank, sank or was sunk? 
Uh, it, sh- it wrecked. Okay. And about 70 copies made it. And were, Floating on driftwood. And were carried through the jungle to the heart of the ruined Incan Empire. <laughs> That's what I read t- literally today, prepping for this. I was just look- randomly looking for And sold to who? I, well, so many questions. But I can't believe that no one will have written a book about that. That is mad and, and i'm going to go look that up Werner herzog made a film about it it's my second it question. is basically fitz corrado but with what, what, what was the name of the um what was the name of the opera singer in fitz corrado i can't remember what it might not i think it might actually be fitz corrado it, it is <laughs> yeah yeah it is he's he's literally carrying literally having his work carried through the jungle like yeah. fitz corrado okay i'm gonna look into that yeah uh, i'm glad I'm glad i finally ticked it off yeah but i'm quite ticked off quite ticked off as well <laughs> okay well should we leave it there for that one yeah yeah long book short chat. Mm-hmm.